From the garden level of Harvard Medical School's historic Vanderbilt Hall in Boston, this is Think Research, a podcast that discusses the stories behind medical research. I'm Abby, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. In the early 1920s, the northern plains of the United States and parts of Canada were experiencing a tragic problem that was causing farmers to panic. Cows were dying from bleeding out after very minor procedures. On one particular farm in Wisconsin, Ed Carlson, a local farmer, grappled with the reality that if he lost any more of his cattle, his livelihood would die as well. Here to tell us the incredible story of how these unfortunate circumstances led to the development of the drug warfarin is the Associate Dean for Clinical and Translational Research at Harvard Medical School and a leading cardiologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital, Dr. Elliot Antman. Hello, Dr. Antman. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Can you take us back in history and talk about the story behind the discovery of warfarin? Where does the story of the drug begin? Uh, It's a fascinating story. It starts in the 1920s uh, on the plains in the northern part of the United States and the southern part of Canada. Farmers noticed that there was a horrific problem that was affecting their cattle. Spontaneously, the cattle would develop severe bleeding problems. Nobody knew exactly what was causing it. And the veterinarians at the time had the equivalent of grand rounds and were discussing what might be at the root cause of this horrible bleeding problem in the cows. And they observed that there was a relationship, an association at that point, between cows ingesting hay that was made from sweet clover or sweet clover hay Uh, seemed to be involved somehow in this bleeding problem that was uh, befalling uh, the cattle. Uh, But no one knew how to solve it other than to recommend to the farmers that they shouldn't feed the cattle this uh, apparently tainted hay. I imagine that just preventing cattle from eating tainted hay is not a sustainable solution. Um, Where does the story go from here and how is Ed Carlson involved? He noticed that in the middle of the winter, Some of his cows started to have bleeding episodes, and he became particularly concerned when the bull started to bleed spontaneously from its nose. So on a very snowy day, he packed up several things in his pickup truck. Uh, And the description of this is uh, quite stark. He put one dead heifer in the back of the pickup truck, a hundred pounds of the hay that he had been feeding the cattle uh, into uh, his pickup truck. And he also took a milk can and he had captured some of the blood that had been dripping from the cattle that had this bleeding problem. And he put that milk can in the back of his pickup truck. And his intention was to go to the state veterinary office, which was in Madison, Wisconsin. So he had to drive over three hours in a blinding snowstorm on a Saturday to find somebody in the state veterinary office to try and help him. And now, of course, it was a Saturday. They were closed. And the only place where he could see any lights on was uh, at the university. And he happened upon the laboratory of Dr. Paul Link, an agricultural biochemist 
who was working in the lab on Saturday. And so the farmer, Farmer Carlson, actually presented the problem to Dr. Link. And he showed him the can uh, that had the blood that he had collected. And interestingly, that blood did not clot. It took over three hours for him to drive to Madison, Wisconsin. And surely, blood coming in contact with a, a foreign surface, such as the metal of the can, would have clotted. But it didn't. And so Dr. Link knew this was a very serious problem. There was no immediate solution he could think of, but he promised the farmer that they would get right to work uh, on the issue. It had already been identified that what was causing the coagulation disorder was the consumption of spoiled sweet clover hay. So the recommendation was to prevent cows from eating the spoiled hay. What was not clear was the specific agent responsible for the disorder. When Dr. Link and Farmer Carlson met, Dr. Link had already been working on the sweet clover hay problem. Dr. Antman, can you tell us more about what Dr. Link's lab knew of the sweet clover hay problem? Apparently, when the hay is mowed, uh, it has an, a nice aromatic smell to it, and that's, of course, why it's called sweet clover hay. Now, the literature says that they believe that the cattle felt that the hay tasted bitter. They were actually working on uh, trying to solve the bitter taste of the hay. So they were a bit familiar with what was present in the sweet clover hay. And they knew that on the shaft of the sweet clover hay, there was a naturally occurring substance. Its chemical structure was called a benzopyrone, and that's, of course, an aromatic hydrocarbon. And the substance that naturally occurred on the hay was called coumarin. So they were familiar with that, but they had no idea why this particular hay that the farmer had brought to them was actually causing bleeding problems in the cattle. So Dr. Link organized his lab to try and solve this problem, and they used animal models to try and replicate the problem uh, that had been observed in the cattle. They actually used rabbits, and they gave uh, different doses of the hay to the rabbits, and they actually established a dose-response relationship. The more of the hay that they fed to the rabbits, the more the bleeding problem would occur in the rabbits, just like it occurred in the cows. But they still had not been able to identify what they referred to as HA, the hemorrhagic agent. Okay, so at this point, the rabbits had the same response as the cattle, and that confirmed that the tainted hay was causing the bleeding issue. So how did the lab identify the hemorrhagic agent? It took about six years after Farmer Carlson actually arrived in Dr. Link's lab for them to crack the, uh, the problem. There was uh, a scientist who was working late at night, and he discovered that on the shaft of the hay, there were some crystals, which they hadn't noticed before. But he observed these crystals under a dissecting microscope. And these crystals shouldn't have been there and they eventually worked out the chemical structure of the crystals. And they discovered that it was two molecules of coumarin fused together. And they began to reason out what had happened. It turned out that the hay had gotten wet when it had been, after, shortly after it had mowed, and a fungus formed on the wet hay. And the fungus caused a fermentation reaction to occur fusing two molecules of coumarin together, forming what they called dicoumarol. 
And now they were able to actually take dicumarol itself and replicate in their laboratory animals the bleeding problem. So they, they had done this in a very scientific way with very limited laboratory equipment that was available in the 1930s. And it's really a, a remarkable tour de force that they were able to actually come up with the answer. And they had found HA. It was dicumarol. Okay, so now dicumarol has been identified as a hemorrhagic agent. What do they do with the discovery from here? Dr. Link got sick, and he had to go to a sanatorium because he had reactivation of pulmonary tuberculosis, which he had acquired in his uh, home country. Uh, but he had to leave some instructions for what the lab should be working on while he was recovering. And he asked them to try and make derivatives of dicumarol. And eventually, the laboratory came up with a derivative of dicumarol that they observed was five times more potent on a weight basis than dicumarol for producing the hemorrhagic problem in their laboratory animal model. And the bleeding problem, which took perhaps two weeks to develop in animals exposed to dicumarol, would occur in less than a week in animals that were exposed to this derivative. And they now had a very potent derivative of dicumarol, something that didn't exist in nature, even when the fermentation reaction occurred. This was something they synthesized. Uh, and they had a very powerful agent that would cause a bleeding problem. And they began to study that a bit. And they realized that they had uh, come upon something that would interfere with the natural process of blood coagulation in animals. So they, they made up a name for the substance that they had synthesized, and Dr. Link decided that he would name it partly after the sponsor for his laboratory, which was the Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation, and partly after the fact that it was a derivative of the original natural substance, coumarin. So it was Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation, that's the WARF part, and then uh, the IN part, so WARFERIN, is how they named this compound, their derivative. So they've discovered this potent compound, warfarin, um, but what did they do with it from here? There was a second problem that the farmers had been bringing to their attention, especially in the winter, because the cattle, of course, are in the barn in the winter, and there were mice and rats running around in the barn. And the farmers were terribly upset about this because this would frighten the cattle. So they decided to actually see whether they could develop warfarin as a rodenticide, a rat poison, uh, trying to produce the same bleeding problem that had originally uh, been observed in the cows, but now in the rats. And actually it worked. So at this point uh, in this amazing story, uh, there was a very potent compound that effectively was a rat poison, but it's, and yes, it's, the problem of the bleeding cows had been solved, but how did it actually turn out to help humans? And that's the next most interesting part of this. Uh, there was a case report that had been published about uh, an individual who was an army inductee who eventually became depressed and attempted suicide, unfortunately, by ingesting a large amount of this rat poison. Now, the army inductee was treated uh, in a hospital. Uh, he recovered because the doctors there 
had actually learned something about this rat poison from the veterinary literature, and they actually learned uh, another fact, which is that you could reverse the coagulation problem brought on by warfarin by giving vitamin K. Uh, so that was another, that was effectively the antidote that had been discovered through a completely separate line of investigation that was conducted originally in Europe. So the doctors caring for this individual who had attempted to commit suicide actually gave vitamin K and they saved this individual's life. And now, uh, Let's consider what facts we have. We had bleeding cattle. We know the cause of it. There's a synthesized compound that is very potent that replicates the problem in the cattle. And now we can see in a human being that the same bleeding problem can occur because that army inductee's coagulation time originally was very prolonged. Now, at this point, uh, Dr. Link was thinking about the fact that maybe this would be a useful medication if it could be given to humans in just the correct dose. So he suggested to one of his colleagues in uh, the pharmaceutical industry that they might want to consider developing and marketing uh, warfarin for use in humans. And so he spoke to one of his colleagues at a a pharmaceutical firm called Endo Laboratories. Now, Endo Laboratories doesn't exist anymore, but they, they were convinced by what Dr. Link was saying, and they agreed to develop and market warfarin, and they did so under the trade name Coumadin. Many people today uh, use the term Coumadin, but they actually mean the generic warfarin. Coumadin is the proprietary or trade brand of warfarin uh, that was originally introduced by Endo Laboratories. So how did Coumadin go from a small pharmaceutical company to one of the most widely used drugs in America today? So now Endo Laboratories is ready to market Coumadin, but nobody's using it. And the next amazing event that occurred was President Eisenhower uh, had uh, a large heart attack. And he was cared for at the Fitzsimmons Army Hospital in Colorado. And the doctors caring for him at the Fitzsimmons Army Hospital wanted to bring in a consultant to help them care for President Eisenhower. So they called upon Dr. Paul Dudley White here in Boston and Dr. White flew to Colorado, consulted on the president, and recognized that the front wall of the president's heart uh, had been deprived of blood because he had a thrombotic occlusion of the artery supplying the front wall of his heart. And Dr. White was worried that that portion of President Eisenhower's heart wouldn't contract well and a, a blood clot could form. So he gave President Eisenhower, an intravenous form of an anticoagulant, but he had to come up with a way of giving President Eisenhower a pill that he could take so that uh, blood clots wouldn't form after the intravenous anticoagulant had been discontinued. So he prescribed Coumadin for President Eisenhower. And now everybody was sitting up and taking notice. My goodness, the leader of the Western world had just been prescribed Coumadin. And this caused enough of a spark of attention 
in the potential use of Coumadin, that it was now investigated for various other conditions where there was a need to provide just the, ra- the right amount of, quote, thinning of the blood or anticoagulation. And one of the biggest problems was to prevent stroke from developing in patients who have a disturbance of the heart rhythm called atrial fibrillation. It's a rapid, irregular heart rhythm, one uh, consequence of which is a clot forming inside the heart and actually flying uh, to an artery in the brain or embolizing to an artery in the brain and causing a stroke. So a whole series of trials were performed to uh, see whether warfarin could reduce the risk of stroke. And it turned out that it reduced the risk of stroke by about two-thirds. It was a fantastic observation. And in total, six trials were done that uh, enrolled a total of 2,900 individuals. It's remarkable that with that relatively small sample size, the dramatic benefit of warfarin could be demonstrated against placebo. And that's the key here. So let's take stock of what happened, where we are today, and what lessons we can learn. The original discovery of warfarin occurred by serendipity. Farmer Carlson happened to show up in Dr. Link's lab. And if we think about this, we can't rely on new medical breakthroughs coming from serendipity. We can't afford the expensive and lengthy development process that takes over a decade and costs over a billion dollars. And that's where we need to apply all of the advances in biomedical research that we have available today. And that's where the very exciting field of clinical translational research can take us. And I hope that uh, as we apply all the breakthroughs in our knowledge, genetics, omics, etc., we will do a much better job at discovering treatments for patients with disease. We won't have to rely on chance events and we won't have to spend as much time and as much money. And this is going to take a team effort. Harvard Catalyst Think Research is supported by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Join us the first Wednesday of each month for a new episode. You can find our podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, and our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch.